Alright man, this is my top 10 favorite films of 1993. I'm going to go over the rules really quick. If you want to just go ahead and skip right into the list, you can go and do that at the timestamps listed down below. But essentially what this is, is that every four months I randomize the years 1930 until a couple years ago to give sort of uh, some leeway for some films to come out of very recently. But anyways, uh, one year is randomly selected and then in that four months I watch as much as I can and then at the end of that uh, four months cycle Michael, put up a list video. Uh, I'm going to go through my top 10 favorites and then at the end uh, go through all of the ones that or list all the ones that I did watch. Um, so really the rules in that regard are that they have to have been seen publicly outside of a film festival that year. So for example, one film that I saw listed repeatedly as one of the strongest of the year was the film Clean Shaven. And while that is listed as 1993, that wasn't publicly seen outside of a festival until 1994. So uh, that was not watched for this. And also, it has to be feature films only, and I look at that as a minimum of 61 minutes, essentially, to, uh, you know, no short films or anything like that. So, just feature films only. Uh, the previous years for the show uh, that are available to listen or watch, if you're interested, have been 1998, 1958, 1956, 2018, 2021, and 1934. So, we got some great films here, uh, and let's get right into it with number 10. At number 10, a great latter-era directed film in an already impressive filmography of directing and acting, uh, Clint Eastwood's A Perfect World. Hey, you ever ridden in a time machine before? Well, sure you have. What do you think this is? A car. You're looking at this thing bass-ackwards. This is a 20th century time machine. I'm the captain, and you're the navigator. Out there, that's the future. And back there, well, that's the past. If life's moving too slow, and you want to project yourself into the future, just step on the gas right here. See? <laughs> and if you want to slow her down, well, hell, you just step on the brake here, and you slow her down. This is the present, Philip. Enjoy it while it lasts. When it comes to the latter era of Clint Eastwood's directed filmography, I feel like this is the main one in terms of how good it is to his later work that is often less talked about. You know, I feel like film fans know about this one, but ultimately, if you're looking at a lot of his later work, while a lot of his later directed films have gotten a lot of attention, you know, um, I think while there have been uh, uh, very good ones, uh, you know, like American Sniper and Sully and Richard Jewell, you know, I think are all very good. But in terms of like the last 20 years and stuff, uh, I feel like this for how good this is it's really not talked about as much because the, the thing is that this was his follow-up to Unforgiven which you know is one of his strongest films I mean very strongest film it's also one of the strongest westerns it's just a brilliant film and this being bridged between uh or be, yeah being the bridge between uh, Briggs and Madison County and that uh, is sort of in a, is in a weird spot because then after this some of his other later work like Absolute Power and, and Blood Work and Space Cowboys I think are all good films um, but not particularly as memorable as something like this I think think this is a side of Clint Eastwood that is a little bit more brutal but really strong on characters as well so what we have with this film is that we have uh Kevin Costner and um uh Keith uh Sarabakia 
if I said that name correctly, there are two escaped convicts who end up at this house with this family. Uh, you know, it starts up like a home invasion sort of thing. And uh, of the two, you know, we have uh, Kevin Costner playing this character, Butch Haynes, and uh, Keith Sarazopka playing this guy, Terry Pugh. And uh, Terry is far more brutal than the two of them. And they get to this house and immediately. He starts attacking the mother and does, doesn't even care if the kids are around. But meanwhile, you know, Butch is in there. He's trying to be kind of playful with the young kid, uh, Philip, played by uh, T.J. Lowther. Or, yeah, Lowther. And uh, through some circumstances, they basically have to take uh, Philip on the run, or Philip uh, as hostage. They go on the run, sort of like a cross-country trip. And all the while, the uh, friendship between Butch and Philip starts to grow, and sort of the um, problems that come with it. At the same time, though, we have uh, a couple sheriffs going after them. We have Clint Eastwood uh, in the film as well, playing this character, Red Garnet, and this new uh, recruit, Sally, played by Laura Dern, and a couple other actors, whose names I'm blanking on right now. Um... But basically, they're riding their tail. They're taking this kind of uh, newly equipped sort of van that they're going to show off to the public. But they end up taking it to find these guys, make sure that Philip isn't harmed, and ultimately bring them in. And the thing that I like a lot about this film is that um, a, a criticism that I have with some later era um, Clint Eastwood films, and it, he didn't write the film, I should also say. The, this was written by John Lee Hancock, who's actually had a pretty interesting career after this. Uh, I do think he's probably a stronger director than he is a uh, writer. He's, had, he's made a couple films I'm not really so big on, but he's also made some films, directed some films like The Founder, The Highwaymen, and The Little Things that I actually really like a lot. I think all three of those are very good films. But some of his written stuff, like The Blind Side and, and Snow White and the Huntsman, really aren't for me. Um, but when it comes to uh, later Clint Eastwood films, is that sometimes with the way that the characters are written, and it's something that is very simple and is very obvious. I think films like Million Dollar Baby and Gran Torino have parts in them that are really good, but sometimes when they, they're they writing the antagonists or writing someone being mean to, to somebody else, it's very simple and, and can be very kind of distracting in a way. I think of that sequence in Million Dollar Baby when, um, you know, the characters come back and they don't end up visiting uh, Hillary Swank. They end up going to, like, uh, there was, like, Universe or Disney World, one of those places, and it's, it's very obvious and very uh, kind of ham-fisted. But what this film does is that the writing this with the characters is so strong that um they never really shy away from Terry's brutality and sort of he's, he's pretty unflinching with what he'll do. He really doesn't care who he harms. And Butch as well, while he is kind and caring, there is still a lot of depth to him. And one of the strongest sequences in the film that comes in the third act, which I won't give away, but really kind of shows that when push comes to shove, uh, he really will be willing to kind of do what he has to do. And a prolonged sequence, it's very tense and sort of starts to fracture their relationship between one another because Butch is like a father figure to Philip. You know, Philip really doesn't have a father. He, you know, comes from a religious family, so he has a lot of restrictions on what he can and can't do, and Butch really tries to uh, really kind of be there for him, and uh, you get kind of the feeling, a sense of um, Philip kind of looking back on this in his life, you know? Um, but at the same time, I think the the back and forth between uh, not only those two characters, but also uh, when we're following the sheriffs as well, it doesn't slow down the film. It actually breaks up, uh, uh, in a good way, the sort of... Um, uh, the plot structure. It doesn't break up the momentum. Whenever it jumps back and forth, it's, it's all really solid in either way. I really like a lot of the character arcs that, uh, or the character arc, I should say, that Clint Eastwood and Laura Dern's character go through, which is kind of what I'm saying with some of his later stuff, is that that could have been a very simple, sort of easy, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A very simple sort of uh, back and forth they could have had of sort of, uh, you know, Laura Dern not being, uh, or somebody that they don't really uh, see a lot of promise in, but kind of has to prove herself to a lot of these older kind of, you know, old-fashioned kind of guys. And with lesser writing, I think that could have been very ham-fisted and simple, uh, which I think maybe borders that at times. But overall, I think that their back and forth works really well. Clint Eastwood is as solid of a, as a director as he is an actor. I mean, th like I said before, this is one of, I mean, this is a latter film, but it's one of the strongest in his directed 
uh, filmography so far. Um, because for everything that's going on and for how easily it could have done, the film really never kind of divulges into melodrama. It's, it's far more interested in either quieter character moments or really, you know, I mean, this film is a little over two hours, and I think that gives it the benefit of the doubt to really kind of take its time and really invest yourself in the relationship of these characters. Because by the end, you really do feel a close connection between Butch and Philip in a way that feels earned, even as much so that if, I mean... With any kind of minor criticism, I would say probably the last 10 minutes or so, I think kind of overstays its welcome a little bit and does hurt a little bit of the emotional impact. But overall, I still think that that um, the the exchanges and the dialogue between those characters is so strong. You know, I really like there's like a, a little uh, thing that comes back into play where they talk about uh, a list that books wants Philip to make sort of are the things that, uh, you know, he wasn't able to do back home under his mother that, you know, he, he's going to want to, he's going to have to do. And I, I really like how that comes back into full circle on top of this being, you know, I also just love road trip films in a way. I mean, I, this is really only a road trip in a way that it's characters going across the country. A lot of these kind of, uh, flat kind of villas, it's all kind of like, uh, I don't know where this was filmed, but I really like, you know, it's really all back roads, all kind of like cornfields and stuff. It really feels kind of isolated from a lot of the big city sort areas in a way that feels um i, I just love the, the, this kind of location I, I love this sort of um i'm thinking of something like uh actually speaking of kevin costner something like fandango as well sort of a lot of the areas that they were in in that film as well fandango as well if you haven't seen that film that's a really brilliant film i talked about a little while ago on the show but um with, with that being said you know an interesting comparison that I hadn't even normally thought of, and I, I looked at somebody else talking about the film, and I thought it was a very excellent point that I, I hadn't even connected originally, was when I mentioned before this was this follow-up to Unforgiven, and I feel like a lot of the same themes that are in Unforgiven are in this film as well. With Unforgiven, you have a character who is an old gunfighter who is forced to kind of go back into his old lifestyle, and the diminishing sort of returns that come with it, the ugliness of the violence, the the, the there's nothing stoic about it, it's very harsh and ugly. When I always love that quote from what Oliver Stone said, that when people die you know people are killed they they fight for their life you know they don't just die they don't just put their hand over their chest and you know fall into the night um that film really kind of confronts that in a way uh, almost like sort of a retrospective on clint eastwood's career you know sort of like as this gunfighter who has been this macho kind of hero but ultimately what happens when this sort of person doesn't die at a young age they live on you know what kind of burden what kind of uh, uh, burdens come with them what kind of memories do they keep with them sort of regrets in their life of the people that they weren't able to you know be with or, or events that that affected them overall and this film kind of touches on that in a way where you have um, in that film, you know, you have, in this film, I should say, you have that father figure sort of element of sort of like this guy showing the ugliness of this violence now that can affect, you know, somebody who's very um, uh, perceptive and very, uh, you know, it, it could easily, you know, the, Philip could easily grow up and, and be like, you know, this person. It's sort of like the different circumstances that you're born under. Uh, and what I'm talking about in relation to Unforgiven, that sort of father figure element is, now I'm blanking on the name of the actor, so I do apologize, but the younger character in Unforgiven who wants to be that Clint Eastwood, uh, Morgan Freeman kind of character, um, and well, I won't go, you know, I won't give away what happens there, but sort of the turning of the turn that character kind of has and how that really affects them in, in a very haunting and emotional way. This film uh, really kind of has that same sort of element of showing that what I was talking about before, that sequence in the third act of the film when Philip really kind of sees sort of how... Um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say unrelenting because that's, that's not the appropriate word for the situation, but sort of what kind of person that book sh- can very easily be and sort of how their relationship affects his character. It's done in a very touching way, and I almost kind of wish that, um, like what I was saying before, is that I, I think if the film ended a little bit earlier, it could have uh, had a much stronger emotional impact. Not saying that from a runtime perspective, because even though this is a little over two hours, I think it's about two hours and 18 minutes, I believe, it never slogs along. It's never boring. It's consistently um, enjoyable and entertaining while also being captivating. I think you have a great cast in this. You have really great back and forth, strong dialogue between the characters, just some really great monologues that Kevin Costner has with uh, TJ Lowther that makes this one of Eastwood's strongest. And the thing that I, I heard somebody say once, which, you know, I don't know if I totally agree with this or not, but they said that this was probably, they considered this to be his last great directed film. And I've seen almost all of Clint Eastwood's directed filmography. Um, I the only one I, I would say the only films of his that I haven't seen since this film are I haven't seen uh, The Bridges of Madison County, uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, True Crime, um, Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima, um, Invictus, Hereafter. And the fifteen seventeen to Paris. Like I said, I've seen almost all of it, and then there's like five or six films that I haven't seen. But I've but every but I think I've seen almost everything previously to this, and I can't say for certain what, how true that is, or whether or not I agree or disagree. I've, I've actually heard uh, many a good thing about both Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. I, I've been really wanting to watch those the past couple months. I heard somebody mention them recently, and it just it just uh, just really, especially with, with Oppenheimer coming out recently, a lot of these World War II films I've been wanting to, to watch that I had never got to. But um, either way, uh, I don't know if this has a Blu-ray or not. I don't believe so. This might just be on DVD, but I'd love to see a company like Criterion or even Arrow or, or somebody pick this up to kind of introduce this to a, to a wider audience because uh, this is just for, for how strong of a film this is, I, I just really am not hearing people talk about this, and I just, uh, it's just great film. I mean, the thing with is that you know I've never been, uh, Kevin Costner's never been an, an attractive, uh, an actor that that's attracted me to watch a film. I think he's a good actor, but I, I, I he's not, you know. I like some of his performances, not so crazy about some others, but he really does shine in the film, and uh, I won't say steals every scene that he's in, but his interactions with all the other characters, especially when you get to the end, and he starts dealing with, you know, some of well, I won't give it away and all that, but it's all consistently good, but excellent stuff, nonetheless. Um, I can't remember where I watched this. This might be streaming somewhere, but I'm not sure, but either way, it's not a difficult film to find, and, and it should be watched, should you be interested, but that's my number 10, which is um, A Perfect World. For number nine, this is one that I kind of toyed with putting higher on the list. Now, when it comes to these top ten lists, it's always kind of tricky to rank them because I think I just talked about A Perfect World and what I get out of this film and what I got out of that film and what I'll get out of some of these other films. It's completely different experiences. Um, they all have their merits, and I'm never I'm not saying that a film that I put at number eight or number nine or number ten are better than either of them. I've said before, I, I don't believe in objectivity in art. I believe that's impossible. Because I think a film like this kind of needs to stand on its own. Um, there's an experience, sort of feeling you get from this film, its own unique experience, I should say, that is unlike almost really anything else on this list, besides one other film that I want to make a comparison. So. But at number nine, uh, total brilliant film. Just 
completely engrossing for the entire runtime and one that I was just so happy to finally have seen. It's been on my radar for so long and to finally sit down and watch this and to be immersed in the experience is something that must be seen to be believed. Uh, this is the film Baraka. looking at uh, films that get re-released in IMAX. I mean, there are films that are truly meant to be seen in a pristine IMAX condition. You look at the work of, like, Christopher Nolan, of course, uh, you know, you, you look at, like, you know, the documentaries that they put out or something like Fantasia and stuff. And this was one that uh, I, I was looking up... Because when I was looking up clips to uh, or trailers to feature on the show, I, I watched the the IMAX trailer for this, and I just looked up if, you know if it got a full run or if it was just a sort of uh, every now and then. And I saw a um, website, the American Cinematheque in California, that had shown this in IMAX uh, in 2022, I believe. And I know like a lot of like uh, like science centers will do um, certain showings of films, like you know older films. Like I was looking at the, recently, uh, the Boston Science Museum had a run of films that were all space themes. They were showing like Gravity and Interstellar in 2001 on their IMAX screen. So this is one that I think watching it in the best uh, available version. Um, on the largest screen you could find is going to really help. I mean, I, I saw this was posted on YouTube, and I would probably, you know, maybe not recommend it that way, uh, to watch it that way. I mean, if you have to, it's, it's sort of like better than not watching it at all. Um, because this is a film that's a little tricky to talk about, because this is, of all the films on this list, I think this is almost entirely... Uh, visual and audio experience. This is a documentary from 1990. I'm not even saying the. Here I am saying the 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 year on the list. That's about the year, man. But this was directed by uh, this guy Ron Freak or Freik. I don't know how to say his last name. And we sort of we go across different parts of the world, different kind of. Um, religious kind of rituals uh we jump to various countries various conditions of the countries different sorts of people uh different landscapes different uh ways that people live um sort of from something that maybe seems more isolated and tribal if you will to a more city kind of new york area and sort of the fast-paced life there it's something that um the the immediate comparison I'm watching this film and I really didn't think of the comparison until I got to the city sequences and something that I didn't realize was so commonly um, compared to is another film being Koyana Stotsky and I, I so I looked up the uh, the people involved or Koyana Scotsy I should say I always say the name wrong I say Stotsky I think it's Scotsy but uh, so I'm looking up uh, this film, and I was just curious. I'm like, there has to. I wonder if there is any relation to that film at all. And you know, because when you get to the sequences in 
in the city area. I think it was New York. I don't remember exactly. But you see, uh, you know, the, the taxis and the cars moving really fast, um, sped up in a way where it's not just that you're seeing these city kind of areas uh, sped up and you know, that, that could be anything, but the way that it's handled, the way that it's edited, I was like, this reminds me so much of that, and I looked it up, and of course, Ron Freak, director, who was the, not only uh, the editor on Baraka, was also the editor on Koyana Skatsi. Uh He worked on the first film as well, uh, let's see, oh no, I'm sorry, Koyana Skatsi is the first film, I apologize, because that's part of a trilogy, and he didn't work on the other two, but it reminded me so much of that, and a criticism that I often hear about Keanu Skowski is that the the message of that film is very obvious, you know, and I get that, um, but when it comes to this film, I think that by showing these different parts of the world, which is actually a fil- uh, uh, an issue that I have with the film uh, Sans Soleil, I remember, well, I remember seeing that, and I think a big problem I have with that film is the unnecessary narration sort of telling you the message of the film and that's a beautifully shot film but I, I feel like I get more out of something like this where you can draw I mean the there are obvious interpret there are obvious comparisons that they're showing you they're showing you know the kind of hectic city life people kind of you know going uh, uh, going in and out of like subways and stuff it's very fast moving it's very uh, uh, you know eclectic you know people working in like in, in like factories you know making like computer parts or anything like that it's all very like you know now 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 which is so something that you often hear people talk about now people talk about oh life's going so fast and you know things are going by so fast but oftentimes if you're living sort of this lifestyle where if you can have anything you want at the touch of your fingertips you want to order food it's right there you want you know pizza it's right there you want to watch any movie you want in the world and that has its great advantages and disadvantages but by the way that the film kind of contrasts something of a more slower quieter lifestyle these sort of rituals these religious events that people go through people living in the jungle or different parts of the world and stuff showing these beautiful overhead shots of these just completely barren areas that looks like they've been abandoned but are just these breathtakingly just, I don't even know, I don't have the words for it. It's just these breathtaking sort of landscapes that when you see them, when you pass by them, in contrast to some of these other sequences, I mean, the the comparisons are there and it's obvious, but I think above all else, the experience of the film on top of, you know, on one being a a widely, uh, you know, an entirely visual experience, but complementing that, the audio in this film as well, they sort of match each other so perfectly uh, in the way that when you have those moments of something more eclectic and faster, the score matches that. And then when you have the quieter moments of just kind of the slow tracking shots, uh, not a lot of uh, cutting to different moments, kind of letting you embrace the scenery around, it, it sort of matches that as well. And, you know, I think it can be compared to, to Koyana Skazi only up to a certain point. I do think that they are different kinds of films, and um, they should be judged on their own merits. I, I really only bring that up because I had seen people online make the comparison, as well as the sequences in the middle, what I was saying before, reminded me so much of that. Now, I, I do want to mention, I haven't seen the follow-up to this film from 2011, Samsara, 
and I'm not really sure the reception on that film, nor, nor do I really care. I'm just saying that I haven't seen that film um, because I remember when Samsara came out. This was back in 2011. I, I think I knew, I had known about Baraka, but I wasn't totally familiar with it. And I think at a younger age, I wouldn't have been able to fully appreciate it. Or maybe I would have. I really don't know. I'm trying to judge what uh, films that maybe I, I didn't appreciate at a younger age that with time and maturity, when you get older, you're sort of able to look at it from a new perspective and able to uh, get it more. But uh, another film that I had watched for this year, which was a film that I liked uh, actually quite a bit, but I think maybe because the editing in that film and maybe some of the directing didn't quite work as well for me was this film Lockshow Drum which is a little tricky to see. I was able to watch a kind of fairly low quality version of, the, of that on YouTube and that's a film as well. Like I should also say with Baraka there's no dialogue in the film. It's all audio. It's all visual and that's a film as well that I think has very little if at any dialogue but none of it's subtitled because it doesn't really matter. You know, you're getting into the sort of religious experiences in that film as well and I think that it could very well have been the version of it that I watched, but I think the editing and sort of what the final product ends up being will obviously shape the whole film, and the editing in that film, I think, is a different kind. It's going for a different kind of experience overall, what I wanted to say. But this is an easier film to watch than it is to talk about, because I, I truly do think that you need to just kind of sit down, get off your telephone, and watch this film, because it's such a unique experience, and I would, I'm, I'm surprised this hasn't had a 4K yet, I mean, I, I won't go into the details of the way this was shot, but this is just, I mean, you can you can look that up, I, I, won't, I won't be here all day with that, but uh, total, total, one of the best things I've seen this year, man, I, I just love this film, and uh, probably could have put it higher, but I think, you know, for the time being, I, it's, it's, it's here on the list at the spot. So that's number nine, Dax um, Baraka. When I think of many of the great French actresses working now, there are many names that come to mind immediately, uh, from the old to the uh, young. Isabel Hubert, Marion Cotillard, Clemence Posey, Melanie Laurent, and of course, you can't have a great list like that without the great um, Juliette Binoche. So, at number eight is one of her most revered roles and one of the most revered films of the 1990s in general, uh, which is Christoph Kieselowski's Three Colors Blue. And maintenant, Attends, 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 peut-être plus léger, sans les percussions. Si on retire les trompettes... So this is the start to Christoph Kieslowski's trilogy of his colors trilogy of three colors, blue, white, and red. Uh, different films in their own right connected through uh, Christoph Kieslowski, of course, and different actresses in the lead. So we have Juliette Binoche here, Julie Delpy, and in three colors red, we have Irene Jacob there. So this is my second time seeing Three Colors Blue. It's a very critically acclaimed film. It's considered, like I said, one of the highlights of the 1990s. Um, and for good reason. I mean, rewatching it again, it's a film that, because of some of the elements of the film, it's, it's a film, I keep saying the word film, it's one that you got to let sit with you. It's a film about loss, it's about tragedy, it's about grief, it's about a woman feeling kind of lost in a world where 
it seems like everybody else has this idea of what she should be, what, how she should react to uh, an unspeakable tragedy. Where we have the beginning of this film, a car, a car crash happens. We find out that this woman, Julie, played by Julia Binoche, has lost her husband and child. And she's grief-stricken, but she's very contained. Uh, she enjoys the solitude. Maybe not enjoys, but she, she thrives in solitude. She really wants no one else in her life. Uh, she wants nothing in her life. She uh, can't kill herself, but doesn't want to live. She's very much trapped in her own kind of head, her own memories. And the there, there are many different elements that the film goes through because it's not just a matter of a woman going through uh, this grief-stricken stage, which it is that, you know, uh, I would say the first half of the film, but the second half of the film, we uh, learn more into about more into sort of what other people want of her now uh, deceased husband, where her husband was a famous composer, and I won't get too much into it, but a sort of a piece that uh, could be finished, could not be finished, and really about her reaction to that of just having her own idea of her husband of uh his work and alongside what other people think of her her husband uh how she should react she she's you know the reason why i wanted to mention her up front is that because with this film as there, there are really three kind of main people that i really think of when i think of this film the, the first being of course julia binoche i mean the whole film is carried on her shoulders essentially in terms of she's in every scene of the film she has to say a lot without saying a lot literally you know there, there's not there are long stretches of the film without dialogue where we're really just kind of in these open isolated settings with her you know much in the mindset of her character the second person I think of is cinematographer uh, Slavomir uh, Idziak. Here, here's me not being able to pronounce names again in this episode. The film is gorgeous. I mean, the thing is that the the template the, the the template of blue is almost throughout the entire film for obvious metaphorical reasons. We're getting into the kind of blue state of her character, of her being. There, there are many objects in the film. There, there are great sequences where she's in uh, this giant blue pool. There's these blue kind of crystals hanging on, and it's a gorgeous-looking film. Early on in the film, uh, in some of the sequences in the hospital, the colors are very muted, and a lot of times in the film, when we get to a lot of the exteriors, they feel very gray. They feel very um, uh, quiet, much like the uh, lead character herself. And third of which being, of course, Krzysztof Kieslowski's excellent direction, the way that he's able to linger on certain sequences, the way he's able to linger on Juliette Binoche and a lot of her... Uh, or lack of facial movements, so, uh, her, uh, you know, day-to-day life going through uh, these long sequences without dialogue, you know, she's going through, kind of going about it at her own way, walking along these corridors, like there's one great uh, sequence in the film where she's walking down this kind of like stone uh, sort of wall, and she's like, you know, dragging her knuckles across the wall until it's too much, and it really hurts for her. It's a film that never, go, never goes into melodrama, it never goes into uh, something that I think would be easily susceptible for it to do, which would be having these uh, dialogue sequences that would tell, not show. The film does just the opposite of that. It's able to kind of let the mood sink in, whether it be not having a lot of score in the film. And when there is a lot of score, it's very loud, it's very bombastic, kind of uh, having it be, you know, from this composer, this kind of like great orchestras, these, uh, you know, these great symphonies. There's one particular shot in the film that I, I always stood out to me is when she puts this little sugar cube inside of a uh, in, in a cup of coffee and how fast it uh, kind of shrinks, kind of showing how fast, you know, really our lives are able to just kind of be gone like that. You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, and I, I heard that he, that he wanted a certain, 
he wanted a sugar cube that would shrink at a certain time period. I don't remember exactly what that was, but it had to be perfect for this, and they had to find... Eventually, they did find it, and it's one of the most memorable shots in the entire film. What I was saying before with the character being a famous composer is that, and the lack of dialogue at times for a lot of the film is that it's almost like the film itself kind of uses these big kind of musical moments or the idea of this great kind of symphony in way, or I would say in replacing of maybe more obvious um, dialogue exchanges or maybe more obvious moments where a character would have to explain to another character what's actually going on instead of just using this, the music that is as a metaphor for all that. It works incredibly well. And when it is based throughout the film, when it is actually apparent, it becomes a lot more noticeable than just a casual story, uh, casual score going around. There's lots of moments of silence in the film. I think I just said the word moments. That's, that's not a word. Sorry, guys, I had work earlier today, so I might be a little stumbling over my words a little bit. But the film, it's not a long film either, but it moves at such a casual, kind of slow pace that it's never boring. It's constantly doing something, even when it seems like nothing really is happening in terms of something big you know it's a very quiet very understated character driven film that never overstays its welcome and when it it's never repetitive either that's the thing is that a film like this you might you know expect one thing out of it in terms of a character kind of dealing with this grief and sort of the lifestyle uh but at a certain point it becomes more about a complex sort of you know really a, a look into this character and, ha and how she wants to remember her husband you know does when it comes to this other subplot that that comes into the film that becomes kind of the central focus in the third act it's really about how do you want to perceive the person that you were with as opposed to everybody else you know it's sort of like at what point is a person gone, you know, is it their literal body or is it, you know, their, the work they put out or, or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's genius, man. It's really genius. Um, you know, I've, I've actually never seen three colors red. I've seen three colors white once and I truthfully don't remember a whole lot about it. So I, I'm, that will have to be rewatched definitely, but I hear often uh, very good things about red, but, but either way, I think this is one that in terms of world cinema at this time, this is one that's pretty commonly talked about. And for good reason. I mean, this is the first time I seen it in a couple years or so and it held immensely i liked it just as much as i did the first time and it still hits powerfully you know without overstaying its welcome without becoming redundant it really kind of encapsulates this mo the, these moments in this character's life and uh the grief that comes with it man it's just a really beautiful film and one that uh is just one of kieslowski's strongest man because i mean when you watch his decalogue series which i've only seen uh maybe one through five or six and he's able to capture these really quieter character moments and, and all those very well he's just a master at it and i think that he's just a director who works works really well with characters, even something like Camera Person, which I think is uh, might be my favorite of his work. Uh, the way that he he directs the lead character in that film, this kind of uh, uh, moral gray area, is fascinating. I mean, he was just a, a genius filmmaker who uh, his last film, last feature film, I should say, was Three Colors White. So this is sort of the beginning of the end for him, but must be seen nonetheless. So really excellent stuff at number eight. That is Three Colors Blue. There's two films on my top ten list that go over the three-hour runtime. Now, when it comes to recommending a film to someone, oftentimes they'll ask, well, how long is it, you know? And I understand that it's easy, you know, to kind of sit back and go, I don't want to watch a long film. I want to watch something kind of easy, disposable. And that's all right, man. I get it. Sometimes you want McDonald's. Sometimes you want a sirloin steak. It's okay. It's all subjective. It's all in the eye of the beholder. However, in a case like this, when you watch a film that's three hours, it can go by in no time where you get up, the end credits come up and you go, oh my gosh, 
I can't believe I've been sitting here for that long, you know. Look at someone like Scorsese. Look at some of his finest works. You have films like Goodfellas, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman, some of the strongest films that uh, are either three hours, that push three hours, or are over three hours. But you don't even think twice about it. Meanwhile, some films you watch that are 60 minutes or 70 minutes, they feel like two days, man. You just really feel the runtime on them. Uh and I, I bring that up here because you have a great filmmaker, one of the one of America's great filmmakers, who made a three-hour-plus film, and it's one of the strongest. It's incredibly enjoyable. It flies by like that, and I'm happy I watched it because this is the first time that I did watch it. This is Robert Altman's Shortcuts. I almost said from 1993. I almost made that mistake again. There is a, a hard, heavy physicality to my new paintings in part because I've executed them on, on large panels of wood, but I'd say that they're tempered by the... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, tempered by the ephemeral use of color. I mean, you could almost say that it's beyond natural color. Well, I think they're about seeing and the responsibility that comes with that. Okay. Thanks. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Who was that? Sherry? No. That was David, the gallery. Oh, David at the gallery. I'm hoping to get a show there. Is this David at the gallery going to be another Mitchell Anderson in our lives? What's that supposed to mean? Well, that's the sort of stuff that you two used to blather on about, isn't it? What are you talking about? The lousy painter, the one who never sold anything, Mitchell Anderson. Just because he never sold anything doesn't mean he was a lousy painter. So you've said. Well, it's true. You know, scientifically speaking, Marion, there's no such thing as beyond natural color. So right off the bat, I'm not even going to bother even trying to compare them. I understand the comparisons to Magnolia. Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia from, what year is that now? I should probably know this, but I don't. Uh, Magnolia from 1999, okay. I, which is also a great film as well. You have two great filmmakers, Robert Altman, Paul Thomas Anderson, making similar kinds of films, whereas they are stories that interwe interweave the lives of these different people over the course of three hours and also, in a way, have controversial-ish endings where when you watch the film, you go, what? And I know I did that for this film. Something happens at the very end of this film and I had to go, wait a minute, what is going on here? Uh, you know, I've talked to people who talk about that the ending of Magnolia doesn't totally work for them and, you know, some people it does, like Solid out of the Holder. Anyway, it's not we're not talking about Magnolia, we're talking about shortcuts. And that's the only time I want to bring up Magnolia because I don't want to. I don't want to bring up the oh, well, which one you know is better. This, it's just, they're both great. Get out of here with that. So shortcuts, man, is exactly what I said. It is man. It's Robert Altman. Uh, he's interweaving the lives of these people in L.A. So you have some married couples. You have friends. You know, and we go about their different lives, and we have a great cast as well. You have actors like Andy McDowell. Jack Lemon, Tim Robbins, Fred Ward, Chris Penn, Julianne Moore, Jennifer Jason Lee, Lily Taylor, Robert Downey Jr. I mean, the lit Matthew Modine, the list goes on and on. And they all have their own lives, man, in L.A. It's a critique on L.A. and sort of a lot of the uh, pretensions, uh, you know, around a lot of the people there and a lot of different lifestyles. But also at the same time, it's more just a, a really interesting look into the lives of these characters. You know, you have some stories like you have Jennifer Jason Lee and uh, her husband, her husband, uh, 
Jerry, played by Chris Penn, where she is, uh, she, you know, is trying to raise their kids, but she's also a phone sex operator. So we have many amusing sequences where she's trying to take care of the kids, you know, put the baby down. Meanwhile, she's talking about all this vulgarity on the telephone. And, and uh, Jerry really doesn't know how to feel about it, man. He's like, it really starts to kind of strain their relationship. And we also have, uh, like, uh, one of the strongest in the film. We have Tim Robbins playing this character, Gene, who's a cop, and his annoyance at this dog that they have, and a really kind of dark but also funny kind of sequence that I won't give away and sort of the frustrations that even when the dog is out of the problem out of the situation it still is a problem man his family won't get off him about this dog man and it's great I'm not going to go into all the stories on that because the thing with a film like this is that by the end of it it's you're re- you're just looking into the lives of these people man so with a lot of these there isn't a lot of total conclusions more so looks into the, just the lives of these characters man and of the film like this because you're just juggling so many different characters, so many different actors, so many different big actors as well, it all balances out on each other, ends up because they interweave with each other's lives, it feels very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, it feels like, you know, like a, like a thread kind of going through, it never feels like you're really jumping around all that too much, you know, because these characters are interacting with each other, and it's sort of like you don't totally know where the film's going to go, who you're going to follow next, and... Everyone has equal amounts of screen time. You never really forget what's going on with each of the stories, which is a problem that could easily happen, is that because you're dealing with so many different characters and so many different situations, so many different um, character motivations, so many different plot conflicts, that'd be easy to kind of lose track of what's going on. And maybe there is that to an extent. I can only speak for myself. But then you also just have some really great monologues in the film by a lot of the characters, man. I think uh, Jack Lemmon has one of the strongest where he's talking to his son, uh, Matthew Modine, who uh, you know it's just a long sequence at this uh, at a at a table at a hospital man and they're back and forth it's really just exceptional he doesn't even come into the film until a little later on I actually didn't even I must have missed his name in the credits or something like that because it was a total surprise to see Jack Lemon show up you know um, as well actually speaking that Julianne Moore is also in Magnolia Max Celeste will say that. Um, but she has one of the standout scenes in the film. She's kind of a, she's an artist, but she's very pretentious in a sort of way. She's talking about her works having beyond color, and her husband really calls her out on it. He's like, that doesn't even make any sense, man. You can't have beyond color. And they have a great back and forth in a way where, um, I've said it before on the show, when it comes to certain films, that oftentimes I can feel myself getting distance from the film itself when you have moments that feel like the actor's having to put something on their acting real man, you know. Uh, it, there's, there's plenty of films where I, I just, there's a strong lack of drama in favor of characters kind of shouting at each other and this really doesn't do that man that whole monologue and that whole argument that that uh, julianne moore has it feels so earned and it feels so natural in a way where she's kind of just casually going about it you know she she's you know not even concerned that she's not wearing pants in a way that doesn't feel exploitive to just having nudity in the film but in a way where you know when you're arguing with somebody you know it's sort of like you're not really concerned about that sort of thing i think of something like like uh before midnight or um a movie like Private Life, you know, these films where I'm thinking of sequences where you have, uh, you know, these married couples uh, arguing and it's sort of like they're not concerned with what they're wearing. And I, I mentioned all these because of all of them feeling a way, they feel very natural, they feel like actual arguments and much less of a scripted sort of ordeal, which is very easy to do, man. I mean, it's sort of like how do you recreate a sort of uh, an argument like that without it feeling like, you know, one line here, one line there. And it's something that I couldn't really tell you, but somebody smarter than me in this case would be Robert Altman knows how to direct very well. Um, I should also say that the film was written by Raymond Carver, Robert Altman, and Frank Barheide. But all the stories... Inner line, oh, I don't know if I mentioned Bruce Davis is in the film as well. I mean, the thing with this film is that 
that I think Robert Altman has always been very good with balancing tone. And some of his films are far more comedic. Some of his are far more dramatic. But I think the way that he's able to balance out a lot of this film that feels very funny but genuine, but then deal with some more dramatic moments where when you get to something that happens in the third act, it's shocking and it comes out of, I wouldn't say nowhere, but it definitely, it, it really kind of makes you go like, whoa, man. But it works because the tone of that, it, it balances each other out so well. I look at his works like California Split and The Long Goodbye and uh, or something much darker like Images where you have these really specific kind of tones where they all balance out each other so well because he's such a strong and confident filmmaker. And I'm also very curious to see his last feature film, uh, or I should I say, I'm sorry, his second to last feature film, uh, Gosford Park from 2001. And actually, I think... Because then he did The Company in 2003, and this one, I don't know what this is, A Prairie Home Companion. Okay, I do apologize. That was not his last feature film. His last feature film was A Prairie Home Companion from 2006. But I'm talking about in terms of the conversation, I always hear Gosford Park brought up. Uh, sort of like a, one of his like one of his later latter era like really great films, but yeah, it, it's just a great cast. Uh, the acting across the board is fantastic, man. Everybody is so enjoyable to watch, and like I said, that three-hour runtime really just fly by. I know it's very easy for it to be a daunting sort of deal because I'll you know sit down and watch a three-hour film, but honestly, this is such an immensely enjoyable film. Oh, also, I also never even mentioned one of my favorite uh, uh, subplots of the film is when you have uh, Lily Taylor and Tom Waits, or yeah, yeah, Lily Taylor is sort of a tired kind of uh, waitress working at this diner, and Tom Waits is in love with her, and they have a great back and forth, and they have a really great moment at the end that I won't give away but man this is just one of this is one of Allman's finest films man that's really saying something because when you have the guy who directed great films like California Split Images and The Long Goodbye just to name a few man this is just one of his very strongest and uh yeah one of the strongest of the 90s as well great companion piece to Magnolia but probably wouldn't watch him back to back because they'd be there all night but hey to each their own all right man at number what number is that at number seven that was Shortcuts the funny thing is that I didn't even realize till now the connection between this film and another 1993 film, uh, that other film being Falling Down with Michael Douglas, which I rewatched for the episode. And it was a good film, but it's about uh, this man who basically has something of a mental breakdown and basically wants to take revenge against society or what he deems to be uh, socially irredeemable. And that's an American film, and this film does draw some parallels to that, but it's from Hong Kong, from uh, director Herman Yao, starring Anthony Wong. This is at number six, Taxi Hunter. Listen to uh, one of the Blu-ray episodes a little while ago. You'll you'll hear me talk about this film uh, then, talking about it being one of my favorite Category Three Hong Kong films. And rewatching it this time, uh, I really just so it holds up so well, man. This for a while, this was a little tricky to see, man. There was uh, an out-of-print DVD. I don't remember who put it out, and I remember I actually had to rent this off of uh, the Alamo Drafthouse website. And then it got, uh, thankfully it has two Blu-rays now, so it's widely available. Um, there's also a version I need that's, that's fairly low quality. Uh, I should say very low quality, but still watchable nonetheless. 
But this is such a fantastic film, man. Uh, now, this film stars Anthony Wong, who did a couple films with Herman Yao. Uh, he's a pretty well-known actor. He's done other films like Hard Boiled and stuff. And basically, you know, in this part of Hong Kong, I, I guess, now I don't know how true the life this actually is in terms of what they see as, t- as uh, the reputation of taxi drivers. But a lot of the taxi drivers in this area, ta- uh, a lot of the taxi drivers in this area, you know, they're just really rude. They're real jerks. They don't treat people with respect. They're very uh, cheap. You know, they're very expensive. Like, cheap the people expensive you know and uh you know but it's sort of like something they have to deal with you know it's sort of like a necessary burden but basically one day you know herman yao is i mean <laughs> herman yao anthony wong and his pregnant wife they get into an accident where basically a taxi the you know, taxi driver ends up you know dragging and killing his pregnant wife and this really kind of sets anthony wong over the edge so he becomes something of a uh, of a um of a uh like a vigilante, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, he becomes sort of like a vigilante, basically going on a tirade against these taxi drivers, man. And the cops are on his tail, but still, he becomes something of sort of a, a local hero, man. Like, a, you know, and he's going after these guys, and it's just, it's just great stuff, man. I mean, it, when talking about other films on this list, it doesn't have the nuance of some of the other films that I've talked about. But in terms of pure enjoyment, this is definitely on there. I don't know what it is about the Hong Kong guys, but they're able to take the most ridiculous comedy and have just the crazy while the sequences but have it all work man i mean this period in time when a lot of these just really cool cat three films are coming out man there are just so many good ones um another one that herman yao did uh, a couple years later is ebola syndrome which recently got a 4k from vinegar syndrome and that's definitely worth watching for sure i, I think that's a really great film uh, i don't know if i like it more or less than taxi hunter but definitely recommend it nonetheless but it's a great you know it's great seeing a film like this because you know i love revenge films i love vigilante films guys who basically you know the cops aren't on their side or you know there's too much kind of legal red tape like oh we can't do this because this and that and it's sort of like well we're gonna take matters into our own hands man and when a lot of these sequences happen a lot of the action sequences i mean i don't know what it is about these hong kong actors man or these stuntmen that are willing to just throw themselves completely into the film but it works so well i mean there's one part in the film where anthony Wong pulls a guy off a car and there ain't man there's this guy looks like he got hurt for real man i mean it looks really gnarly and as the film goes on, I think a big part of the reason why this works so much is because it's because Anthony Wong is such a strong leading man. I mean, he's been in many, many of films, and it's you know interesting to kind of watch the Cat Three documentary on the Untold Story Blu-ray, where he really doesn't he's really not big on a lot of these films, man. He's something more he he, he enjoys doing more kind of intellectual sort of uh, uh, high high art sort of work instead of doing like a lot of these sorts of films. And you know, I understand where he's coming from, but it, but you know whether he likes it or not. I mean, and he is an icon for a lot of these films. His really, he's such a charismatic leading man, and he has such a great range that a lot of these actors, you know, who would maybe see a film like this, like a vigilante sort of revenge film, maybe would see it as something lesser. But it's really just his professionalism that makes his, that makes not just the film, but his performance so memorable. When he starts to get really kind of pumped up to go after these guys, you know, and sort of like wreak vengeance or seek vengeance, I should say, I should say, on a lot of them, it's so kind of fulfilling, man. It's such a fun and enjoyable film that. I think on a second viewing, I may have actually liked it more this time, you know. I mean, the, the combination of Anthony Wong and Herman Yao, I mean, they just work so well together. And overall, this is just such an exciting and fun, enjoyable film with such a good tone, man. The tone of this film is not too dark, not too light. It's really just right there, man. It really has great sequence, great action sequences. Uh, a lot of the comedy works. It's just so enjoyable, man. 
And I'm glad to see that this film does have multiple Blu-rays now, so it's much more accessible than it was a couple years ago. But great stuff out of Hong Kong, man. You know, I really just, this is just such a, a personal favorite of mine. I love this film. Uh, so at number six right there, that is um, Taxi Hunter. It goes without saying, in my opinion, that this film has the strongest cast of any film of 1993, but honestly, I think this has one of the strongest casts of any film ever. One of my personal favorites gets better every time I see it. This is George P. Cosmatos' Tombstone. All right, now you listen to me. The first time in our lives we got a chance to stop wandering and finally be a family. Now, this is trouble we don't need. You saw what happened to Fred White? We know what we're doing, White. Okay, fine. Say you're right. Say you don't get yourself killed. That's something else. All those years I worked those cow towns, I was only ever mixed up in one shooting. Just one. But a man lost his life and I took it. You don't know how that feels, Morton. Believe me, boy, you don't ever want to know. Not ever. Yeah, come on, man. You can't talk about great 90s westerns without talking about Tombstone, man. This is just one of the most enjoyable. And every time I watch this, this is just such a total comfort film, man. Now, before we get into it, man, you got to hear this cast. This cast is ridiculous. You have Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, Powers Booth, Michael Bean, Charlton Heston, Stephen Lang, uh, Dana Delaney, John Teeny, Thomas Hayden Church, you know, Michael Rooker, Harry Carey Jr., Lisa Collins, man. It's ridiculous in this film. Frank freaking Stallone is in this film, man. Come on. Anyways, man. So, yeah, man. This is, uh, so you have, uh, you know, a couple brothers here. You have Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell, Virgil Earp, played by Sam Elliott, and Morgan Earp, played by, by Bill Paxton, man. They're coming into town. Wyatt Earp really kind of wants to, uh, sort of have a, a quiet life in this new area in Tombstone, Arizona. But of course, like I was talking about with Unforgiven before, it's not so easy for a gunfighter to leave his life behind. And of course, got to mention in the film as well, Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer, and what I believe is his strongest performance to date, and I think that's what he believes as well, at least one of his very strongest performances. In that uh, Val documentary, they mentioned a lot about him in this film and how it really did a lot for his career, more so than even something like Batman or something like that. But the thing with this film is that I think the tone of this film is so enjoyable because a lot of the film, it's very kind of lighthearted and fun when they first kind of get into town and they're all kind of hanging out with their wives and stuff and you know uh it's it's very kind of light and fun Kurt Russell in a sea of a great cast like this really kind of commands the lead here man because there's there's a couple moments throughout that are just so enjoyable like there's a part early on where he meets with Billy Bob Thornton man where he's at this uh the, Billy Bob Thornton is playing this real jerk of a blackjack dealer and uh you know uh Wyatt goes into his in this bar and he's like like, you know, or in this, you know, whatever. He's like, why, you know, we should be more packed here on a day like this. And the bartender's saying, like, yeah, they're all scared of him, man. They don't want to go. And that whole sequence, I don't want to give it away, but the way that Wyatt just messes with him is so great. Really kind of commands force. I mean, he really kind of walks into town and really just overtakes it in a way where it's just so naturally him, where you can see it as Wyatt Earp, but I see it in a lot of ways as Kurt Russell's charisma himself, man. He's just got that casual charisma. I would highly recommend listening to any of his commentaries between him and John Carpenter because the way that Kurt Russell talks and the way that he reminisces about films that he's in he's just such a likable personality that is just so enjoyable to watch 
But Val Kilmer in the film as well, you know, Doc Holliday is getting sick. And as we watch the film, he's trying to kind of maintain this composure and this masculinity. But he's just getting sicker and sicker as it goes on, man. We just see the sweat on his face. We kind of feel the sickness in him. He's in a room full of just these macho kind of guys, these gunslingers. And here he is. In one moment, in one of my favorite moments of the film, where one of the characters tries to intimidate him by doing this whole kind of gun twirl, being showing him like, yeah, man, you're not, you're, you're, you're old news. And, and the and uh, how that how Doc responds is just so classic. There are just so many of those little great moments throughout. And Sam Alley and Bill Paxton don't want to push them to the side either. They have just as memorable moments, man. Bill Paxton has one of the most memorable moments in the film. And I will say that with a sea of characters like this, that when characters start to bite the dust and they start to go, I mean, you really do feel, man. There's one particular moment in the film, probably about halfway through, where one of the characters dies. And it's such a tragic moment, man. And you really do feel the emotion and the powerful kind of connection that these characters have and from there it really just knocks into the second half where it starts to get more serious it starts to become more dramatic and the action sequences are really great as well there's one moment that is so great when Wyatt is just gunning down these guys he's sort of forced back into his old lifestyle he's just yelling at him shooting his guns man it's so great that tone of having something more of a classic uh, western in a way of sort of having to fight for your uh, you know uh, fight for your masculinity but also fight for you know just having a normal life, but, you know, being sucked back into that life, but also something more contemporary, something more kind of reflective, where it's sort of like, you know, these people now wanting to be the sort of person. You know, I think a good comparison film like this, uh, you know, not, uh, you know, more serious than this film, but I think in terms of a lot of the same ideas that does it in a kind of different sort of fashion, I think of The Gunfighter from 1950 with Gregory Peck, um, which is a film that I had seen in the past couple of years the first time that really had a, a big impact on me, but is that idea, and I guess Unforgiven as well, you kind of put them all together, Unforgiven being a little later, you know, with 92, but having these characters, these gunfighters who really don't want to be their reputation, they want to kind of do their own thing, but ultimately, because they've spent all this time and they have so much blood in their hands, they really will never be able to get past that, and sort of having to either live with that or fall back into prey and sort of be that person that you don't want to be. It sucks interesting character dynamic that with the evolution of the western films the way that we saw a lot of these cowboy kinds of characters really come to reconcile and realize you know what happens when the smoke clears and you know the, the gun fights over what are you kind of left with and this film never gets as dark as something like that in terms of what it you know the, the, the character kind of gray morality because this does have that light sort of tone they think, they think this is a touchstone film which is a Disney company so and when I say that it's not a Disney film but it is very much um, you know in that sort of uh, uh, realm but either way man I mean, George Cosmatos as well is, is, a, is a really solid filmmaker. Of course, did like Rambo First Blood Part 2, and he did like Cobra and, and First, and, um, and of unknown origin, you know, it, it, it's just excellent stuff here. The way that he's able to kind of put a classic sort of story like this in such an engaging and contemporary fashion, man, with such a great cast, is something to be totally marveled at, man. This is just to a total Western highlight, a highlight of the 1990s. I love this film, and every time I watch it, it just gets better and better, man. Just really love this film. At number five, that's Tombstone. It seems like in the past couple years or so with the release of films like Mandy and Joe and Pig, uh, there's been sort of reappraisal on the recent sort of trend on Nicolas Cage films where I feel like a while ago there was a lot of hate towards him. People were calling him a terrible actor because of some of the film choices he was making and I was never really on board with that, man. He's always been a phenomenal actor. He's done many, many great films with many great performances and just because he does some films for the paycheck, man, that doesn't negate from the fact that he really is such a strong, unique character actor on his own. 
alone. And when it came to the reappraisal of his work, one of the films that I don't hear as much talked about, along with the film Birdie, which I'll always champion because I really don't hear anyone talking about that, as well as Shoot the Moon or Is It Racing with the Moon, which I always get those titles mixed up. But both, both great films, but the one with Nicolas Cage and Sean Penn, Racing with the Moon, I believe. Yeah, that's got to be it. Anyways, one of the films that I really still don't hear brought up, and I think in part it might be because of availability and with hopefully the upcoming Blu-ray coming out, or maybe it already is out, I really don't know. It'll kind of bring some more attention. But one of his very strongest films, one of Dennis Hopper's very strongest films, I love this film, Red Red Rock West. I can never say that title in one breath. Is that Tickle? Because it won't if I pull the trigger. What the hell are you doing on my truck? Sorry, boss. I didn't mean to scare you. Hey! Did I look scared to you? What the hell are you doing on my truck? Well, I was just trying to ditch my old lady. You were what? Yeah, she caught me in the barn. I wasn't supposed to be there. She started sprouting horns and shit. Bullshit. Bullshit. Look at that uncontrolled response to bullshit. I hate when that happens. Yeah, I don't like it either, but I just had to get the hell out of there. So you come out and climbed up on my truck? Yeah. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but you've never met my wife. <laughs> Spooky. Yeah? Yeah? You're lying to me. Get off my truck. Come on, get off the truck. Oh, man. I'm headed north if you want to ride. Thanks. Next time you need a ride, you have to try asking for this film was directed by John Dahl and written by John and Rick Dahl. Now, John Dahl has went on to do primarily, almost exclusively TV, man. He's been doing it for the past 15 years or so. But he's done a couple of films. He's done mostly some music videos, and he did some films like Kill Me Again, The Last Seduction, uh, Rounders, which is a film I like a lot, uh, Joyride from 2001 with Paul Walker, Steve Zahn, and uh, Lily Sobieski, which I think is a fun kind of uh, uh, you know road horror film. But Red Rock West... I'm never going to be able to say that title right, is, to me, undeniably his strongest man. I mean, you have Nicolas Cage in this film, uh, is playing this character, Michael, and it's sort of like he's going through this small town, you know, he needs money, he's looking for a job, and he ends up at this bar one day, and the guy at the counter mistakes him from somebody else. He, I forgot the exact proposal, basically he's saying, like, like uh, he needs him to, to, to kill his wife, to kill someone's wife. And at first he's kind of reluctant, but because Michael's so desperate in this situation, you know, he really needs this money. So he's like, you know, his idea is that I'm going to take this money and leave. But of course, does not end up that way. Ends up being this character, uh, uh, Anne, played by Lara Flynn Boyle, who was very big at the time. I think she was also in... I mean, I know she was in like Twin Peaks and stuff, but I'm talking about, I think she was in The Dark Backward as well. I'm pretty sure that was her. It's been a little while since I've seen The Dark Backward. That means a Blu-ray as well. It's a really fun film. But anyways, complications arise. And of course, you put Dennis Hopper in a film, you're going to get Dennis freaking Hopper, man. He has such a wild performance and he comes into the film and really starts to antagonize and go against Nicolas Cage, man. And their back and forth is so well done. It's kind of crazy that they didn't do more work together because I think Dennis Hopper and Nicolas Cage have a lot in common where they're known for their really kind of wild uh, film performances, a lot of wild kind of crazy scenes. I mean, Dennis Hopper's personal life is far more uh, wild than Nicolas Cage's, so to speak. But I'm talking about when you think of Dennis Hopper, 
proper, you think of many just wild performances like Blue Velvet, or I, I think of like Mad Dog Morgan and stuff, you know, um, or Out of the Blue, which I think is one of his strongest performances, one of his strongest films, also directed. But they work so well together because Dennis Hopper is playing it not as big as you would expect, and Nicolas Cage is playing it very kind of uh, cool, kind of subtle. He really doesn't snap like you maybe would expect him to. And I think oftentimes with a case like him, just certain actors, I think it'd be kind of it can be kind of hard to sort of distinguish the character and the actor if the actor is so notable. And that's why I feel like a lot of, I see a lot of actors, um, I, not even exactly Nicholas Cage, but I see a lot of actors like Sam Jackson and, you know, a lot of these actors who at one point were doing really interesting characters, but now, and I'm, I'm you know, he's a, he's a fantastic actor. I'm, I'm not, I'm only using it as an example because the first thing to come to mind, but I think at a point a lot of actors kind of, because they're such a personality that they sort of, become not so much the character more so the actor and i think nicholas cage hasn't fallen into that because then i see a film of his like pig or like joe and i see way more of an actual character i know he has that 824 movie coming up but i, I forgot the name of it i haven't seen the trailer or anything like that yet but it's getting some good word of mouth from what i hear so um but i think he is just a guy who was doing really interesting character work and and i think still is because in this film here you really don't see it as him he is playing this sort of desperate sort of character but this but it's almost like a western in a way man it's sort of like this whole film this whole script could be kind of revisioned as a western it's sort of like this 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 guy kind of comes to town it's very kind of quiet and isolated there's no one really around I and mean, even in that bar sequence i don't think there's anyone else there it's almost like a smoky kind of place man it's sort of the problem that he gets himself into where anybody else of course you'd be like yeah of course how could you get yourself in this situation but in a character so desperate it's like how far will he go um the whole the way the whole film's on the way ah, the way the whole film plays out it plays like a great kind of neo-noir great mystery where you're starting to wonder who's really going against whom and lara flynn boyle has some peculiarities to her that are not fully revealed you know until later on in the film of what's really going on of who's playing who and Nicolas Cage's character being caught in the middle as well we see sort of the danger that Dennis Hopper's character presents where he's very you know in classic Dennis Hopper fashion he can be very calm and cool and collected one second but then he's not afraid to kind of go off the edge and really kind of release his full force in a way that makes him such a frightening and menacing character actor you know he as well I think at a certain point started to play more of Dennis Hopper but then in a film like this it does feel like more of a character man with those kind of moments that come out where you go okay that's Dennis Hopper but it's also a really strongly written character you know um yeah man I mean I think this has a I I, I don't know if the blu-ray is out yet but this is getting a blue blu-ray overseas um but nothing planned for America right now and that's a real shame because I feel like a big part of why this film has been kind of forgotten outside of film fans is because of lack of availability because it's sort of like having to sort of search for this film and it's not a hard film to find you just got to do a little bit of uh you know googling and you can find it one way or another and I'll let you find it as you may but regardless, man, this is just one of the strongest neo-noir films. And this really does play like a Western. So I guess you could say this is sort of like a contemporary Western in a way. I mean, they are out West in Arizona. So uh, really, really, I'm sorry, not Arizona. That was Tombstone. That's the wrong film, man. Uh, you know, but 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 great stuff nonetheless. And this is my second time viewing it, and, viewing it. And I like this just a lot more than I did the first time. And it has just one of the great last lines in the film. The last line of this film Oh my gosh, you see this with an audience, man. They're going to stand up and applaud. What a fantastic film, man. I, yeah, I'm sure next time I watch it, I'm, I'll pro I'd probably even put it higher on the list. But fantastic film nonetheless. You got to see it, man. Red Rock West. There we go. I said it right that time. So at this point in the list, 
you're realizing that nothing's really off topic, man. Nothing's really off limits. We have high-end art films like Three Colors Blue uh, or Baraka. We have really kind of fun, enjoyable films like Tombstone and Taxi Hunter, uh, contemplative character films like Shortcuts and A Perfect World. And this film at number three uh, is a total, total personal favorite, man. Um I was so happy to rewatch it. I loved it as much as I loved it the first time. And when I talked about Taxi Hunter, I hinted at this film. I even said it once, but I had to put this at number three because I love this film. This is another film by Herman Yao, also starring Anthony Wong. That's right, The Untold Story. Critically acclaimed. An instant cult classic. Written by and starring Danny Lee, star of John Woo's The Killer. And starring hard-boiled Anthony Wong in the riveting performance that earned him the 1993 Hong Kong Film Award for Best Actor. Creepy. Demented. Darkly witty. Really, and 100% fresh. I guess the full title is technically The Eight Immortals Restaurant, The Untold Story, because it's somewhat based off a true story, a little bit in a way. Same sort of events, uh, same tragedy, but it does its own thing, man. Now, that could... Well, let's get into the film, man. So basically, we have this film. Anthony Wong, as well, in my favorite performance of it, is he's playing this character, Wang Chi Hang, and he's running this Eight Immortals restaurant, but he's totally unhinged, man. He's off the edge. People are kind of, you know, they're a little weary of him, and some body parts come up missing on a beach, and the cops are like, what the hell is going on? What's with these body parts, man? But basically, we find out sooner than later, without the full details yet, that it's this character... Wang Chi Hang, who has a very short temper and a very violent sort of being that he's killing certain people, cutting them up and putting them in his food at his restaurant. Now, when it comes to the real life story of this, the actual part about the people being put in the food, I don't know if that's ever actually been confirmed. I think that was just for the film. But either way, with this film, what it does so well when I talk about tone with some of these other films is that a, a comparison I like to make in terms of, I think, why this film works and why a certain other film doesn't. Actually, ironically, one of my absolute favorite films, which is Wes Craven's total masterpiece, The Last House on the Left from 1972, but often a fair criticism I've always heard um, is sort of the dichotomy between the gruesome, ugly, kind of disturbing violence of the film and then having the very silly, fun, jovial, banjo-playing, you know, cops who are very bad at their job. And every time I've heard somebody talk about the film, it's always something that's brought up. And I've heard some explanations of it. Actually, an acquaintance of mine, who I'm not going to butcher his, his reasoning, but he he had an interesting explanation talking about sort of the climate at the time and sort of the back and forth. It, I don't want to go into the whole thing because one, I'm going to butcher what he want, what he uh, truly meant to say, and two, I'm not going to go be here all day. But the thing with this film is that you have uh, v- you have very violent, horrific, gory sequences, man, uh, that are disturbing. But then you have these cop characters who are so silly and are so funny. That's the difference between, you know, with The Last House on the Left, a, a lot of the, the bumbling cop sort of side plot stuff, it never really made me laugh. It's sort of like, all right, I get why, you know, it's there to kind of whatever. Um, but here, 
anytime they cut back to the cops, man, it's hilarious because it's so silly. Like they're going after like this one female cop where they're like, oh, you're not sexy enough. She's like, no, I'm a, I'm a real cop. You guys aren't even doing anything. I'm the one doing all the work and she does the work and they take credit for it. I mean, it's so silly. It's like, oh, this is so ridiculous, man. Uh, but then you cut back to the Anthony Wong stuff and he is such a charismatic lead in the film. And when I say charismatic, I mean, he steals every scene that he's in. His eyes are wide. And when he goes off the edge, it's so aggressive and violent. There's one sequence when he attacks one of the women and it just goes on and it's so ugly and, and uncomfortable. But then you cut back to um, these really just hilarious sequences of the cops. There's one there's one kill in the film where uh, a hand gets stuck uh, you know, around his leg and it's played comedically, but it's also really gory as well. And as the film goes on, sort of the brutality of it really and sort of the way that I was talking about before with Taxi Hunter, how um, these Hong Kong actors will... will just do a lot of really physical stuff, man. They'll, they'll just throw their bodies around. I mean, there's a point where a character gets thrown off a bed and there's no way that actor didn't actually get hurt when they're doing that. Uh, one of the strongest parts of the film is when there's a character and everybody else has to kind of go after the character. And I think I remember hearing about it in that Cat 3 documentary that's on the Untold Story Blu-ray, or maybe I heard from somewhere else, where basically the motivation was that character has to get away and they told all the other, that actor has to get away and they told all the other actors they have to get that actor. And it's one of the craziest sequences in the film uh that's not gore it's just this they're, they're everybody's chasing after them and it's just so entertaining to watch i mean it's very gory man it doesn't shy away and the violence is harsh and it's brutal but it's also very funny as well in a way that i think a film like this a hong kong film like this it's such a fine line to balance that i think maybe a lot of american films uh, couldn't, wouldn't be able to totally manage. In terms of a film like this, especially when you're dealing with some real events, I know it can be kind of a tricky area, and I think it's probably strong to not make this straight up a true story. I think I might kind of uh, hit the wrong nerve, but I think by taking those elements, but then doing sort of your own thing with it, with a, with a wildly performance by Anthony Wong, really kind of makes a, it makes it a classic of its type. I mean, you know, if you're if you're talking about the strongest kind of category three Hong Kong films, I there's there's unquestionably this would be in the top kind of tier, man. It's just so enjoyable to watch, and sort of the uh, the what Anthony Wong does, uh, not only with his facial expressions, but physically, man. When other characters, you know, when he gets himself in a predicament, or not even a predicament, really, just more of a problem, and other characters really just start to brutally beat on him, man. It's sort of like it's so entertaining to watch because this character has been such a bastard the whole time and seeing everybody kind of go against him and the way that they really kind of mess with him, man. It's sort of like you really can't think too hard about sort of any any sort of deeper meaning with a lot of this film, man, because there really is, there's there's Anthony Wong who's killing these people, man, and we, we start to learn more about what's going on with him and his past and stuff, and the cops kind of going up against him, man. I, I wouldn't really think too deep into it or else you're going to give yourself a headache, because on the surface, man, this is just a phenomenal energetic, fun, disturbing, super un-PC, super violent, enjoyable film, man. And I gotta say, I highly recommend that Unearthed Films Blu-ray. That's just one of their strongest releases to date in a sea of already just incredible releases from them, man. On a second viewing of this, I loved it as much as I did the first time, and I, I can't wait to show this film to people, man. It's just so much fun to watch, and the tone is just so perfect. So, excellent stuff, man. Love this film. At number three is The Untold Story. At number two, this was one of the first films that I watched for the 1993 list. Uh, this was my second time watching the film, and this was from one of my very favorite filmmakers, a filmmaker who I've mentioned a handful of times in the show. You know, there's no shortage of me praising him. And this film I loved even more in a second viewing from uh, the master, one of my favorites, Peter Weir. 
This is the film Fearless. Naturally, it's in my interest to get as large a settlement as possible. In fact, that's my job. I don't apologize for it. Yeah, no, this is America in the 90s. Nobody apologizes anymore. They read a memoir. Mr. Klein, this is the law, not some trick I invented. Each minute that you and Mr. Gordon knew that you were going to die is compensable as pain and suffering. Testify to the mental anguish that you and Mr. Gordon experience, and each minute is worth dollars, big dollars, dollars to which you and Mrs. Gordon are entitled. What you really want me to say is that Jeff wept at the prospect of his wife widowed and his children orphaned. Now, it's a shame that he died instantly. If only he had been mashed up and died slowly in my arms, and Nan could Jesus, really, Max. really make out on this. Fine. Good night. Are you ashamed of me? Is that it? I'm trying to make money off my dead husband so I don't meet your standards of widowhood. Let me ask you something. If Jeff was here, what would he do? Oh, come on, Max, tell me. I can't lie. If you had died and he had lived, what would he be willing to say to, to help Laura and Jonah? Look, I know that he ripped you off for the tickets. We don't know that. Maybe he was going to pay him back. Are you punishing Jeff? Okay. Okay, I'll say what you want. A film like this, I think, is very easy to kind of uh, misconstrue what actually is really going on because you watch the trailer for this film they're playing the u2 song it looks very schmaltzy it looks very kind of simple and easy um but because this is directed by peter weir you know you're gonna get something a little more complex a little bit more a little something more intellectual i can't even speak right now and that's exactly what the film is i mean it's a film that is definitely an experience and one that even if me even with me describing it and even having seen it previously i don't think will fully do uh the job justice so you have this character uh max played by jeff bridges who at the beginning of the film is in a deadly uh plane crash he's the only survivor of this plane crash and he the way the film starts it really kind of takes you off guard because he is in this horrible plane crash He's down and he gets out of the plane and he really just starts walking. He starts walking to uh, somebody he used to love. He walks to their house and they have lunch. And you're watching the film, you know, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with what kind of film it will be, you're like, what is going on here, man? And basically, this character's life is completely changed after this plane crash. He it's, he's is very um, calm. He's very zen in a will. He's sort of like taking life at a different um, perspective at the same time he starts to kind of uh, form a friendship with this character Carla played by Rosie Perez who is as great in the film uh, she's dealing with the loss of somebody that she loved who died in the plane crash and Max is having to uh, kind of be something of a friend to her uh, someone who's very close but in a way where Max is seeing his life in a different kind of way he's seeing it on a different kind of level where he's not worried about anything he has no fear you know in the title fearless where he's taking far more risks and he's really just kind of taking things not for granted so to speak but is really completely aware of his life and is sort of completely aware of the the people around him and I think the big thing with this film is the combination between uh, Peter Weir's direction uh, Raphael Iglesias is writing I should say and Jeff Bridges is acting because I think 
if you've seen a film like Starman, also with Jeff Bridges, he he doesn't act quite like that, but it's sort of this very relaxed demeanor, this very calm demeanor. That there are moments in the film, in this film, Fearless, that where he does have an outburst that feel very earned in the context of the film. But I think when I mention the three of them is that Peter Weir is a filmmaker who I've always been very praised on because of when I see his films, uh, like one of my all-time favorite films, Picnic Picnic at Hanging Rock, as well as other great films like The Last Wave, uh, The Truman Show, which was made my top 10 in 1998, uh, The Plumber. I would say more so with Picnic at Hanging Rock, The Last Wave, and even The Plumber to an extent, that he has this sort of almost hallucinatory dreamlike vibe, um, you know, where it feels not quite in reality. And I think this film has that to an extent as well, where it feels the whole time like there's something kind of off with the reality, where we're dealing with these other characters outside of, you know, uh, just Max. So we're dealing with other characters who are dealing like with their own trauma and dealing with these different people. So it's not in completely from his point of view but at the same time, because the film is so centered through him that we are getting his sort of perspective. We're getting his relaxed sort of demeanor on a lot of it. And because of Jeff Bridges' Jeff Bridges' uh, 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 great acting from Peter Weir's direction, you know, the combination of the two, is that they take certain sequences in the film that might not have worked with a lesser actor or director. Um, there are sequences in the film, like there's one moment when Max kind of, uh, they're having dinner and uh, their kids are kind of like messing around at the table and they've actually run off to go play video games. And, um, you know, his wife, I should also mention, played by the great Isabella Rossellini, um, she's kind of like, I would ever let him play video games, it's no big deal. But Max is sort of, uh, he, you know, he, he really kind of loses it talking about this isn't a game, you know, it's sort of like life is so precious and stuff. And on paper, it can come off as incredibly melodramatic and hokey, but in the film, it never comes across that. Another sequence in the film, which I don't know if I even want to totally give away, more so let you kind of see it for yourself, is that him and Rosie Perez are at, the, at this mall, and he has an idea that at first she finds incredibly morbid. She asks him, like, why would you even think that was a good idea? Why would you, you know, like, this is terrible. But the way the, that they act, you know, I, you know, Jeff Briggs and Rosie Perez, two phenomenal actors, um, with Weir's direction, that it never comes off as hokey it never comes off as insincere and that's what i'm saying before that with the trailer for this film i think it's an easy film to kind of be mismarketed as something very kind of i don't even want to say oscar Beatty because I, I that's not really a fair kind of assessment of it but you see certain films where the where the the idea or the messages are very obvious from you know a very obvious kind of perspective there's a couple there's actually a couple films that come to mind immediately that i don't i don't want to say i don't want to be a jerk but there's a couple films that easily fall in that category that are same similar kinds of films about tragedies and characters kind of going on with their lives with that because I think that with the combination of such the great cast and crew with this they make something so powerful and so moving I should also say some of the other great actors in the film as well you have John Turturro in the film Benicio Del Toro John DeLancey uh, Deidre O'Connell um and whenever they cut back to these because uh, it jumps back between like you know the, the the crash and the people on the plane and it back and forth it all feels very ethereal and it feels very dreamlike there's like one moment in the film that really stuck out to me um in particular both times when I, when I was watching this is that everybody on the plane is sort of you know they realize that they're, they're experiencing really gnarly turbulence and it's, it's looking really bad and Max gets up from his seat and just kind of starts to walk through the aisles in sort of a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A very kind of like, uh, 
I don't even want to say Christ-like. That's really not a good uh, metaphor for something like this. But in a way, maybe it kind of is, or maybe something like a higher sort of being. Um, and he sees this young child really by themselves, like, you know, scared and crying and stuff. And he just casually kind of sits down and he's just like talking with them and stuff in a way that doesn't feel phony. It doesn't feel melodramatic. It doesn't feel like very, uh, uh, like, uh, what's what I'm looking for? It, it doesn't feel like it's, it's, it's spoon-feeding it to the audience. It's a very tender uh, uh, emotional moment in an otherwise harrowing situation. And I think that having seen this a couple of years since, I've seen this a couple of years before and then having watched it since now on a second viewing, I get a whole other, a whole additional, I should say, not other, but additional kind of emotional resonance with this. And then where the film ends, it's so, there's just one shot, which I think, which is in the trailer, unfortunately, you know, but when you watch the film, it's very dreamlike. But it's so moving and it's so touching that when the, you know, like with Pygmy Hanging Rock at the last week, that when the credits come up, you still feel like there's something more there, that this isn't the end of this actual story. This is just where the film is ending, that there's something maybe otherworldly possibly happening. Um, it's one of Jeff Bridges' strongest films. It's one of Peter Weir's strongest films. And it's really one of everyone's strongest films. Isabella Rossellini, Rosie Perez, John Turturro, Benicio Del Toro, Deidre O'Connell. I've got sense my phone. John Delancey. It's a total highlight of this year that I still feel like, in a way, I'm not hearing as much talked about. I, I, I watched this film and I brought it up and I said, man, have you guys seen this film? This is completely brilliant. And I don't think anyone has seen this. This has a Warner Archive Blu-ray, so this is very easy to, to find and watch. But don't be put off by the poster. Don't be put off by the trailer or the soundtrack or anything like that. This is a very intellectual film that is going for a really kind of questionable morality, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I would say. But, but either way brilliant film man this is just any other year this could easily have been number one it just happened to be it up by by something else but a brilliant film nonetheless from a brilliant filmmaker man I, I love this film so much um if that isn't obvious at this point so number two is fearless so at number one i mean when 1983 got pulled up as the year to do and i was looking for films to add you know, as much as I like to say that there isn't a sort of bias or there isn't sort of a predestined sort of idea, but I was really struggling thinking of a film that could possibly be the number one spot besides this one. I mean, um, this film, I truly consider this to be one of the greatest pieces of art in the history of mankind um, from a great filmmaker who is also one of his other films, is one of his other 90s films from uh, 98 was almost my number one film of that year as well. That film was Saving Private Ryan, and this film is undeniably my favorite film of 1993. At number one is Schindler's List. That's it. You can finish that page. What did good say about this? You just told him how many people you needed and you're not buying them. You're buying them, you're paying it for each of these names. If you were still working for me, I'd expect you to talk me out of it. It's costing me a fortune. Finish the page and leave one space at the bottom.
list is an absolute good. The list is life. All around its margins lies the gulf. What I was mentioning earlier with shortcuts when I talk about run times of films, I mean, this film is almost three and a half hours, and this was my second time seeing it, and it flew by like an hour and a half film, man. This film is just completely engaging. It's completely just one of the highlights of art, of cinema. And the thing with the film is that I'm not like a diehard Spielberg guy. I like a lot of his films. You know, he has, I think he has probably more I'm not as big on than I am with this. So, you know, when I watch this film, I see a lot of the issues that I'd normally have with him that aren't in this film. And that are, you know, I, I do feel a lot of times with Spielberg's work that it can oftentimes lead into either melodrama or very, lead into very easy conclusions. And the thing when you're talking about, uh, you know, a tragedy like the Holocaust and you're dealing with, you know, like Auschwitz and, you know, the Third Reich, I think it's very easy and very shallow to kind of uh, rely on solely images of atrocities, of violence, of suffering as an easy way to manipulate the audience into feeling something uh, more of an emotional connection to your film than uh, normally a, a fictional scenario. But what Spielberg never does that here, much in the same way where I'm talking about Saving Private Ryan, where like you can easily kind of deal with sort of the atrocities of World War II. But what why I think that this film and Saving Private Ryan are his two strongest films is that he's dealing far more with really, really strong characters in the backdrop of horrible, you know, atrocities. I mean, obviously this is World War II as well, but specifically in here about the Holocaust, whereas in Saving Private Ryan, you're dealing with something else entirely. You're dealing with a, with a fictional event that still works absolutely it's a brilliant masterpiece but because you're dealing with a real event here it is touch your subject it is a touch your subject in a way that i think maybe you know i've heard some criticism about the ending of the film and i guess i get that but i to me in the context of the rest of the film i never think it deals with melodrama i think it deals with brutality and it deals with ugliness but more importantly I think it deals with the character. You have the character of Oscar Schindler in this film, played by Liam Neeson, who, you know, it takes place during World War II, and basically he finds a way where he sees that a lot of these Jewish people are, you know, being put into camps and all that, and it's sort of like, at first, he's in it for purely financial gain, where he's like, I can make money off this, but at the same time, he realizes that he can save a lot of these people by buying them up and putting them in his factory, putting them to work and stuff. You have, as equally powerful, you have Ray Fiennes, and maybe, perhaps, the strongest performance to his day. He plays uh, this this officer, Amon Goth. I think as I say his last name, I apologize. But he's a guy who is sort of He's he's a villain, but he's not a he's not a comical villain. He's very real, where he's somebody with a lot of complexity to him. One of the strongest sequences in the films, I believe, is when uh, Oscar. So he's friendly with Oscar Schindler, and Oscar is basically trying to talk to him about being more moral, about being uh, kinder to a lot of prisoners there. And I won't give away how that whole sequence goes. It's about a 10, 15 minute sequence, but but sort of like this the kind of person that he is, it's not possible for him to kind of have any sort of real soul, any sort of morality. It's really just, he's in a position of power and he's in a position of cruelty. And if he, if he's not inflicting the sort of cruelty, then it beca- it can become all, you know, even uglier. Um, one of the best sequences in the film, I would say, uh, it, it's almost a quick one and it makes a very tense one. Cause you're, you, you know, you've seen the brutality of the film. You, you, 
question where this will go is that you have a, a he goes to shoot a character and the gun jams and I won't say how that sequence ends but that entire sequence every click of the gun that the bullet doesn't come because you're on the edge of your seat Ben Kingsley as well in the film playing Itzik Stern who works with um, Oscar Schindler to write up this list and to get the names of all these Jews to get them out of the camps and stuff I mean it's a, it's a historical epic it's you know you have it's a big budgeted Hollywood historical drama but above all else, it's also a really quiet, tender, personal character film. As well as you really can't talk about this film without talking about the brilliant cinematography from Zanoff Kaminsky. Well, I believe this was his first collaboration with Spielberg, who would go on to do many, many of his other films. Who would do actually the cinematography as well for Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds, Munich, um, a film I, I'm a big fan of. I've talked about a lot of the show that I love from 2007, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Uh, I mean, he's just done a lot of work, man. Actually, before this, he's done uh, The Terror Within 2. Uh, cool as Ice, uh, Pirates, uh, Killer Instinct. So you know, but but. It's not just the fact that it's in black and white that it automatically looks good because that's a pretty, that's a very easy to just say, oh, it's in black and white, so you have that excuse. But the way that a lot of the, oh, damn, I messed up my words there. The way that certain shots are are, are composed, I mean, there, there's one sequence in the film where they're talking about putting the list together and it's sort of like you have Liam Neeson in silhouette and you have the smoke kind of with um, Ben Kingsley and the way that there are just beautiful tracking shots, you know, like there's like just like, just some of the shots like when they're going Auschwitz and stuff you sort of feel the kind of horror you feel really the kind of ongoing tension and sort of despair that you know that these people are going through and the trams are going through it feels like a nauseating feeling in your stomach man and to what I think is a powerful conclusion of the film to the film which I was uh, funny I was recently reading uh, in that Jean-Luc Godard book I talked about I mean I wouldn't say recently maybe a couple months ago or so well depending on recently whatever but he he uh, he had a big problem with, I mean, he, Jean-Luc Godard was very, very critical of a lot of films, a lot of filmmakers. I love him. He's one of my favorite filmmakers, but this is undeniable. He had, he was not shy about his, his criticisms towards a lot of films and filmmakers. He had a lot to say about this film and had a lot to say about the ending of the film. But watching it this time, when you're watching the film in context and when you get to a really kind of powerful, dramatic moment, it completely works in the context of it to make a really kind of emotionally devastating finale. Um, that really just, just watching it again, man, just makes the hairs on your arm stand. There's, there's really, I mean, in terms of World War II films, it's, it's, you don't even want to put this in the category of that. It's sort of like just, I mean, unquestionably, just one of the greatest films ever, man. When you talk about the greats of Casablanca or Citizen Kane or The Godfather, I mean, Schindler's List, to me, is always in that conversation. This just goes beyond being a great film. This is truly one of the highlights of cinema as an art form, man, of what cinema can do, of how it can emotionally move you, man. It's really just next-level filmmaking. And even though I'm, I don't love Spielberg, I mentioned that before, I, I only mentioned that not to be a jerk, but I want to say with context, given that even though I, I don't love you know a lot of his work, um, I think a film like this was Saving Private Ryan. Just go, I didn't sound my phone again. Damn it. Um, this film goes beyond that. It goes beyond being just a great film. It, it, it's something, uh, just it's its own being, man. It's just a brilliant, brilliant film, and and unquestionably, in my opinion, my favorite film of 1993. There, there just wasn't even anything that could even top it. I wouldn't feel right topping it. So, absolute brilliance, man. Just masterpiece isn't a, isn't a strong enough word. It's just one of the greatest pieces of art I've ever seen. And number one, man, is Schindler's List. 
So that was my top 10 favorite films of 1993. Some really, really phenomenal films in there, man. And at the end of every year list, I go through all the films that I watched for that year, rank them from least favorite to favorite, just name the titles only. So for 1993, I watched 83 films, and uh, for my least favorite to favorite, we'll go as is. So at number 83, we have The Crush. At number 82, we have The Eagle Shooting Heroes. At number 81, we have Jack the Bear. At number 80, we have Summersby. At number 79, we have Little Buddha. At number 78, we had Sankofa. At number 77, we have Bedevil. At number 76, we have Robin Hood Men in Tights. At number 75, we have Benny and June. At number 74, we have Shram. At number 73, we have California. At number 72, we have Abraham's Valley. At number 71, we have Calendar. At number 70, we have Mad Dog and Glory. At number 69, we have Lost in Yonkers. At number 68, we have Lockjaw Drum. At number 67, we have True Romance. At number 66, we have The Secret Garden. At number 65, we have The Fugitive. At number 64, we have This Boy's Life. At number 63, we have The Man Without a Face. At number 62, we have Samurai Kids. At number 61, we have Derek Jarman's Blue. At number 60, we have The Firm. At number 59, we have Dangerous Game. At number 58, we have Grumpy Old Men. At number, 50, ah, at number 57, we have Carlito's Way. I can't speak right now. At number 56, we have Frauds. At number 55, we have What's Eating Gilbert Grape. At number 54, we have Anchorus. At number 53, we have Philadelphia. At number 52, we have A Bronx Tale. At number 51, we have National Weapons Loaded Weapon 1. Or National... <laughs> what did I say? National Weapons? Good God, man. National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. Oh, I'm losing my mind on this. At number 50, we have Menace to Society. At number 49, we have Crime Story. At number 48, we have The Wedding Banquet. At number... That's, yeah, never mind. At number 47, we have Nightmare Before Christmas. At uh, number 46, we have Tai Chi Master. At number 45, we have Kronos. At number 44, we have Kika. At number 43, we have Falling Down. At number 42, we have Undefeatable. At number 41, we have Searching for Bobby Fischer. At number 40, we have The Joy Luck Club. At number 39, we have In the Name of the Father. At number 38, we have The Piano. At number 37, we have M. Butterfly. At number 36, we have The Scent of Green Papaya. At number 35, we have Time Indefinite. At number 34, we have Dear Diary. At number 33, we have Raining Stones. At number 32, we have Far Away So Close. At number 31, we have King of the Hill. At number 30, we have Heart and Souls. At number 29, we have Fire in the Sky. At number 28, we have Farewell My Concubine. At number 27, we have In the Line of Fire. At number 26, we have The Music of Chance. At number 25, we have Groundhog Day. At number 24, we have I Am a Promise, The Children of Stanton Elementary School. At number 23, we have Days They Confused. At number 22, we have Sonatine. At number 21, we have Moving. At number 20, we have Demolition Man. At number 19, we have Naked. At number 18, we have Arizona Dream. At number 17, we have Jurassic Park. At number 16, we have Cool Runnings. At number 15, we have The Age of Innocence. At number 14, we have the remains of the day at number 13 we have six degrees of separation at number 12 we have manhattan murder mystery and at number 11 we have the cement garden and the top 10 one more time number 10 is a perfect world number nine is baraka number eight is three colors blue number seven is shortcuts number six is taxi hunter number five is tombstone number four is red rock west number three is the untold story number two is fearless and number one is schindler's list 
So now is the time to randomize the years of what will be the next top 10 list for March. Now I do from 1930 to five years ago previous, and because 2018 was already one of the top 10 ones, this will be 1930 to 2017. And again, the years that have already been done uh, have been 1998, 1958, 1956, 2018, 2021, 1934, and now 1993. So the next top 10 list will be, or top 10 year list will be 1941. So in March, we will do my top 10 favorite films of 1941. Thank you guys so much for listening to yet another top 10 list episode. I love doing these and I love talking about these films and I hope you'll join me back in March for another list. Thank you so much for listening. And cut. Perfect. Print it. Let's move on.